Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Going to be talking this uh, week about Holy Week. Uh, we are on Wednesday of Holy Week as uh, as I speak right now. And uh, also going to be talking about the Passion of Our Lord. And no doubt you've heard a lot about uh, these topics on the other Virgin Most Powerful programs this week. But I think this is one topic that we can't talk about too much. And I wanted to do kind of a rundown of the events of Holy Week, the meaning of our redemption. <clears throat> also talk about um, the liturgy of Holy Week in the extraordinary form. And beginning with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which was the reading for the, or the celebration uh, of this past Sunday, right, Palm Sunday. And um, in the uh, extraordinary form, they read the Passion account uh, on this Sunday, but they also have a gospel at the Blessing of the Palms, which is the account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So that's what we're going to look at today uh, from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 9, and taking as our translation the uh, translation from the New Catholic Bible. When they drew near Jeru- uh, when they drew near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent off two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village directly ahead of you, and as soon as you enter you will find a, a tethered donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them. Then he will let you have them at once. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went off and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on their backs, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that preceded him and those that followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is one of the key elements uh, of Holy Week, of course, the beginning of Holy Week, but in the whole life of our Lord. Because He's fulfilling one of the most attractive of the Old Testament prophecies as the Messiah in the midst of his people, God's messengers, okay, in in the midst of of the human race. And joyous shouts of acclamation are rising on every side. Hosanna, they say. Hosanna means, means save us or grant salvation. But it is above all an acclamation. It's a form of applause, and, and Jesus allows himself to be acclaimed precisely as the son of David, the promised savior from the royal line of the uh, Davidic kings. He is the very figure that the, the, the uh, believing people had been trying to picture for generations and generations. And now here he is in their midst, riding on a donkey, the common mount of the poor. <clears throat> now, Matthew refers to Isaiah 62.11 and the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which describes the Messiah as a humble and meek king taking peaceful possession of his kingdom. Right, So he's not riding in with fire and sword, but coming through the gate to shouts of, of Hosanna. Uh, verse 7 says, They brought the donkey and the colt 
and laid their cloaks on their backs, and he sat on them. Okay, he sat on them refers to the cloaks, not both the animals. Um, we learn from Mark chapter 11 and Luke 19 that Jesus rode on the colt. But Matthew uh, mentions these, the two animals. He gives us this little detail. Uh, because the disciples brought the mother donkey as well as the colt to Jesus. And for the practical reason that um, a colt, having not been separated from its mother, might be unmanageable without the mother there. And um, the notes in my New Catholic Bible say that it was customary for a mother donkey to follow after her, her young. And uh, and it struck me, and this is just me, this is not uh, any kind of official exegesis, but that uh, that Our Lady followed uh, her offspring, her son, uh, through the events of Holy Week, and most especially through the way of the cross uh, to Calvary. Okay, Matthew says that there's a very large crowd, a multitude, meeting Jesus. Verse 9 says, the crowd shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, which is taken from Psalm 118. Now, some modern Bible critics will uh, try and convince you that this phrase was just a common expression. This, this is expressed, it was the customary greeting that was given to pilgrims entering Jerusalem for the Holy Days. Uh, and that is nonsense. <laughs> okay. On the contrary, in fact, the shouts of Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That specifically is an acclamation directed to the Messiah taking possession of his kingdom. So why was there a crowd waiting for him? Uh, you know, we know that there were pilgrims traveling with him, uh, and uh, some of the pilgrims uh, ran ahead to Jerusalem, and the news about Jesus coming spread like wildfire, most especially as he had only very recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, So that, that, uh, that spread through the crowds who were there uh, for the Passover, and it kindled in them the hope that this uh, Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And so they prepared that triumphal welcome for him. And, uh, and I think, you know, it's, it's through divine inspiration. Spiritually speaking, the reception with the waving palms shows us that uh, the Jesus, you know, as, as the victor over death and, and Satan uh, and, and hell, and that he would gain for us the palm of peace with God and peace with our neighbor and, and peace with ourselves, for that matter, and that he would open for us the, the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem. But historically speaking, these same people who are shouting, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, five days later, they'd be shouting for his blood. The ones who had cried Hosanna will now be crying, crucify him. And there's a lesson there for us, which is to place our trust in God alone and not in man, because he who is with you today may well be against you tomorrow. So we should be watchful that we do not imitate the fickleness of the crowd, you know, by joyfully receiving our Savior at Easter, only to cry, you know, to, to crucify him again, as St. Paul says uh, in Hebrews, by falling back into our sins. Now, you also notice that up till now, our Lord has pretty much avoided all veneration of the public. You know, he even told people that had been healed, or, or when he had cast out demons, and the demons say, we know who you are. He told people, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody about my miracles. Don't tell them about my identity. But now he's approaching Jerusalem to suffer and die for the redemption of the world, and it is his will to enter solemnly as Messiah, as king, you know, with, with, with thousands of voices proclaiming uh, his presence to the unbelieving, 
in Jerusalem. The, the scribes and Pharisees come to mind. You know, that, that this is indeed the promised Redeemer. But, you know, as, again, he didn't make the entrance in battle array. He didn't come with a sword on a stallion. You know, I mean, that's coming <laughs> at the end of all things. But here he's, he's showing us, you know, he's meek and gentle and, and sitting on a donkey and, and the very type of peace. You know, he's trying to show that he's the founder and king, um, but not of an earthly city you know, raised by force of arms, which is what the Jews were expecting, but, but a prince of peace, the kingdom not of this world, a kingdom of truth and grace. So that, that final, that entry into Jerusalem is kind of a final warning. Uh, it's the time of visitation. And our Lord Jesus knew only too well that, that his grace would be passed by unused, as, as so much had already been, that many of his chosen people would uh, just blindly reject their salvation, and that the hearts of their leaders were going to be filled with hate and envy for their Savior. And and for this reason, Jesus tells us, our our Scripture tells us, rather, that Jesus burst into tears. He wept upon seeing Jerusalem. And it shows us the depth of his love and compassion. And as one spiritual writer put it, In truth, the tears of Jesus are a mystery to us. So incomprehensible is the love which brought him from heaven to this veil of tears. He prayed for those who persecuted him, but it is infinitely more that he should have wept over their misfortunes. So Palm Sunday is celebrated with the blessing of the palms, with the solemn procession, uh, in memory of our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and also in um, gratitude for, you know, his victory, the victory of faith over unbelief, the victory of life over death, and as a beneficial warning for us, as it was uh, in the first century, it is so in the 21st, that we must overcome sin in, if we want to enter triumphantly into heaven. <clears throat> so during Holy Week, after his triumphal entry and before he enters his passion, Jesus had a lot to say. Uh, he told the parables of the wedding feast and, and the talents and the tenants and the ten virgins. And he answered questions about paying taxes. You know, he foretold the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the world, the final judgment. Uh, and he pronounced the seven woes against the Pharisees, uh, scribes and Pharisees, which he contrasted, um, you know, with the sincerity and the generosity of the poor widow, right? In a nutshell, he taught that external religion must be the manifestation and the, the, the practical application of internal religion, which consists not so much of, you know, rule following, but of, of the spirit of justice and, and mercy and truth. And, and he taught us that the desire to appear religious, right, before other people, but having a heart full of ungodly sentiments is the height of hypocrisy. And it was that hypocrisy that that motivated him to not just to say some strong words, but to braid a whip of cords and cleanse the temple. So when we come back, we're going to look at uh, the redemption, the passion, the liturgy of Holy Week uh, in the extraordinary form, and the evidence of the passion to be found on the Shroud of Turin. All that when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, talking about Holy Week. And we talked about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which kicks off Holy Week. And, uh, and then we have these uh, very important events. So we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, followed by, on Thursday, with the Last Supper. And um, we call, um, when Jesus has that Passover with the disciples, we call it the Last Supper because it was the last meal that our Lord ate before, uh, before his death. And we know that um, it's also the Last Supper because for Christians, it was the last Passover. You know, the, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Passover in, in memory of their deliverance from Egypt and how they, they, they were saved by the, the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts. And our Lord Jesus, at the Last Supper, he institutes the Holy Eucharist. He deviates from the, uh, the Paschal Liturgy with that, that third cup, the cup of blessing, <clears throat> when he says, you know, take and eat, this is my body, which will be given up for you. And then he takes the cup and says, take it, this all of you, and drink from it, for this is my blood of the new and everlasting covenant, shed for you and for many under the remission of sins. He's, he's actually transforming the Passover into the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And, and we see the power of, of the sacrament because he, when he consecrates the bread and wine, he actually makes present for the apostles the sacrifice of Calvary that will take place on Good Friday. He makes it present for them. That once and for all sacrifice was made present for them on Holy Thursday, sacramentally, by Jesus, just the way that the apostles themselves and their successors, your parish priest, acting in the person of Christ, uh, when they consecrate the bread and wine, they make that once and for all sacrifice of Good Friday present for us here today, sacramentally. So that happened for the first time at, uh, at the Last Supper. Also, we read in, in John's Gospel that our Lord washed the feet of the apostles um, that Holy Thursday. And it was to give them an example of humility. You know, Peter, of course, very scandalized by the idea that our Lord would do something, that, an act of such lowly service to them. <clears throat> but he was giving them an example where he said, uh, if I have washed your feet, you know, you call me teacher and master, and it's right you do, because that is what I am. And if I wash your feet, then you should wash each other's feet. And so as uh, their custom arose in Rome, that the Pope on Holy Thursday would wash the feet of 12 priests, you know, in, in memory of Christ and the apostles, that the, the, the Pope and the priests. And then, of course, uh, today, in various countries around the world, not everywhere, but in many countries, parish priests wash the feet of 12 poor men. And, and, and of course, uh, <clears throat> and under Francis, that's been changed. They don't, you know, don't necessarily have to be men anymore and so forth, but that's, that's another talk for another time. <clears throat> and it was, uh, so it was on that, that Holy Thursday that Christ institutes the Eucharist, institutes the priesthood, uh, shows the, the apostles that they need to be leaders by serving, and, uh, and, and when they all received their first Holy Communion. So this is the beginning of, you know, the Triduum, the Holy Thursday. We call the, the, those three days, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, uh, followed by Easter. And that is, those three days are the Triduum. But, but really, it's just, liturgically, it's one celebration, really. It's, it's kind of one day, if you will. And, and that follows the reality that 
what began at the Last Supper actually culminates on the cross, and it is kind of one great liturgical act. And we've spoken about that before. Certainly this is the uh, uh, the topic of Dr. Hahn's uh, The Lamb's Supper and the Fourth Cup, all of that. And I'm not, I don't have the time to go into that today. But it, it, it suffice it to say that Holy Thursday is what kicks off the events that um, of our redemption. And, and we talk about that, and what does that mean? Well, you know, uh, to redeem something is to, is to buy back something that's been lost, all right, or to, uh, to uh, give satisfaction or compensation for, for an offense, okay? That's what a redeemer does. And by the redemption, the Catholic Church is talking about the redemption of the whole human race by the uh, offering of the suffering and death uh, of Christ to God in a fitting sacrifice in satisfaction for our sins, which then regained for us the right to be called the children of God and to be heirs of heaven. And and it's the thing, no creature could uh, give of himself, make satisfaction for our sins. Uh, sin, of course, offends. God is an infinite person, and it's an, it's, sin offends, and it's an infinite offense, if you will. And so a finite person, a creature, can't make satisfaction for that infinite offense. That would require an infinite person. And so the second person of the Blessed Trinity makes satisfaction for our sins. But of course, as God, he can't suffer or die. And so he becomes man. He remains one divine person, right? That infinite person offering his, inf- offering his infinite sacrifice, but he does it as a man. He does it as our uh, covenant representative. You know, all, all, all the floods and, and all, the, all the burnt offerings and all that, none of that could, could wipe away the stain of the great evil of sin, but uh, only the blood of Christ could do so. Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has lain on him the iniquity of us all. He is the Lamb of God whose sacrifice takes away the sins of the world. And Christ died for everyone, everyone without exception. Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived or will ever live, we are all of us redeemed. Um, I remember when Pope Francis, a couple of years ago, um, he was being questioned uh, about uh, granting an interview to Eugenio Scalafari, who is something of a notorious atheist journalist in, in Italy. And uh, Pope Francis said, um, you know, even atheists are redeemed. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the, the press says, well, what's the Pope saying? Is he saying everyone's going to heaven? Or is, you know, is the Pope Francis universal salvation? No, <clears throat> everyone is redeemed. But not everyone will cooperate with the graces won by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Many do not believe in him. Many who do believe in him uh, lead sinful lives. Yes, we're all redeemed, but that does not mean that we are all saved. Okay. And when it comes to uh, the redemption, that is something that we can never, we can never pay, uh, repay Christ uh, for, for that sacrifice, not in this life or in the next. What we can do is show our appreciation by, you know, worshiping him and by living according to his will, by cooperating with his grace. All right, so the chief sufferings of Christ in his passion were his, uh, his bitter agony of soul in the garden, uh, accompanied by the bloody sweat, uh, his cruel scourging, the, the carrying of the cross, the crowning with thorns, and, of course, his crucifixion and death. 
And you know, our Lord foretold the passion. He, he, uh, he told the apostles back in Mark 9, uh, verse 30, he said, uh, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And having been killed, he will rise again on the third day. And then again in the next chapter, he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit upon him, and scourge him, and put him to death. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and in, in some detail. That's what makes the, the agony in the garden so poignant, that he arises from table at, uh, at the Last Supper and goes to the garden. And, right, and, and as Scott Hahn made, uh, maintains, it was st- in the midst of the liturgy. That it was after the, the third, there, there are four cups uh, of wine that are served in a, a Passover meal, and it was after the third cup, the, 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 the cup of Thanksgiving, or, or Eucharistia, right, the Eucharist, that Christ uh, leaves, leaves the table and goes off into the night. Um, he says that, that the world may know that I love the Father, and that I do as the Father has commanded me, arise and let us go from here. That's in uh, John fourteen thirty one. So he knows what's going to happen, and he's entering into it willingly. And of course, in the garden, he was so sad at, at the sins of men and, and their ingratitude, um, not believing in him, you know, uh, after everything that he was going to go through. You know, he says in Matthew twenty six thirty eight, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. And he cries out to the Father in, in his, you know, sacred humanity, um, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And uh, in his agony, Luke tells us that his sweat became as great drops of blood running onto the ground. And I, I talked about this a little last week. You know, the, the question is, he, he asked the Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And, you know, the theological question is, could the cup have passed? And in Catholic theology, uh, the, the answer is yes. That, again, our Lord is a divine person. His every action has an in- infinite value. Therefore, the blood shed in his circumcision would have been sufficient to satisfy the justice of God. But remember, this sacrifice is not, you know, he doesn't go to the cross because it's entirely necessary, but because it's fitting because he's taking on the due punishment for our sins and to show us, you know, the the great evil of sin, that it would deserve that punishment and that he would willingly take it upon himself. Uh, Our Lord is betrayed by Judas in the garden, seized by the soldiers, taken before the high priest, and condemned to death. Um, The Sanhedrin, the Council of the Jews, uh, was headed by Caiaphas, the high priest, they condemned Jesus for the crime of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, in Holy Week, uh, our Lord stops. He, he's not coy. He's not speaking in, you know, he tells parables, but they're very pointed. And, and, uh, and now he's, uh, he makes his point clear. The high priest standing said to him, Dost thou make no answer to the things that these men prefer against thee? But Jesus kept silence. And the high priest said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, Thou hast said it. Or in Mark's gospel, I am. 
Then the high priest tore his garments, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He is liable to death. And then he was taken to Pontius Pilate, because, of course, under the Roman government, the Jews weren't allowed to execute a criminal without uh, um, going to the, to the Romans. And Pilate questioned Christ time and again. And again, that's, that's worth the whole show, just the exchange between Pilate and Christ. But he had to come and say to, to his accusers, I find no guilt in him. Or, you know, in the old translation, I find no cause in him. There's no reason for him to be here. Uh, but the priests and, and the Pharisees, they hated Jesus and they persecuted him because they expected the Messiah to be an earthly king. And they were so proud that in spite of all the proofs that our Lord offered that he was uh, the Christ, they couldn't believe that a poor man could be the Messiah. And, uh, and they hated him also because he rebuked them for their sins. And we'll talk about what happened next uh, when we come back. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Bridge Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We shall return. Welcome back here. It's uh, No-Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. Great to have you with us. We're talking about the trial of Jesus and Jesus before Pilate. And uh, Pilate wanted to please the Jews, and so he had Jesus scourged. Uh, he was bound to a pillar, his clothes removed, and, and he was beaten until he was one great wound. And uh, in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the evidence from the Shroud of Turin, and, and we'll come back to that. Uh, and then the soldiers made a crown of thorns and put it on his head and mocked him, called him King of the Jews, and then they returned him to Pilate, and he says, Pilate says, Behold, I bring him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus came forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple cloak, and he said to them, Ecce homo, behold the man. But it was not sufficient. And finally, um, you know, afraid that if he didn't permit the Jews to execute him, um, they would accuse him before Caesar. In fact, they, they threatened him to do, to do that. They, they say, We have no king but Caesar. And they said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's, right? So they're implying that they're going to make trouble for him. And so Pilate uh, delivered, washed his hands of the whole matter and uh, delivered him to be crucified. And as we know, he was made to carry his cross uh, to Calvary, where he was nailed to the cross at around noon. Between two thieves, he was crucified, hung on the cross, and then died about three hours later at 3 p.m., so he was then taken from the cross. He was placed in the tomb. This is, these are the events that are uh, celebrated and remembered every year liturgically in the Easter Triduum. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, Holy Week in the rites of the extraordinary form, right, in the traditional rites of the Mass. And I know that, um, that Traditionis Custodes uh, actually uh, in it says that um, the Triduum is verboten, in, in the, uh, but there are still... <laughs> places where, uh, where it is being celebrated. I'm going to be, uh, I'm privileged to uh, uh, celebrate Holy Thursday in the extraordinary form uh, tomorrow. I'm looking very much forward to that. And I want to say, if you have the opportunity, regardless of, of 
what form of the mass it is. If you have any opportunity to go to any of the uh, of the liturgies of the Triduum, by all means, do that. There are great graces uh, to be found there. All right. During Holy Week, the Church relives the Passion and the death of Christ. Right on Palm Sunday, we have the solemn entry of Jesus into Jerusalem with the blessings of the of the palm, and then on on High Mass on this day, and then on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, the story of the Passion is read from each one of the evangelists. And on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday afternoon, we have the Tenebrae uh, prayers that are celebrated in the church uh, when, when 15 candles are extinguished one by one. Uh, very, very powerful is to show the flight of the disciples and the death of our Lord. Then on Holy Thursday, traditionally, that's when the bishop would consecrate uh, the holy oils for, for use in, you know, baptism and the anointing of the sick and so forth. Um, I think in our diocese this year, they had the Chrism Mass on Monday, right? They had a, a special Mass just, just for that. Holy Thursday is, was when that used to happen, and uh, the bishop then also would wash the, the feet of the poor man, and they have the Mass of the, of the Last Supper. Uh, and then on Good Friday, there was no Mass, and there still is. There's no Mass on Good Friday in remembrance of, uh, of our Lord's crucifixion that he died, was taken from us that day. And uh, <clears throat> there was no communion on that day either. Now, I, I think that uh, in the Reformed Rite and in the ex- uh, ordinary form, they will have a communion service on Good Friday, but there's still no Mass. And the crucifix then, which has been veiled um, since Palm Sunday, or not Palm Sunday, since Passion Sunday, we've had veils over the, over the statues. They unveil the crucifix and place it at the foot of the sanctuary, and the people come up and, and adore the, the crucifix, come and, and kiss the feet of, of Christ. And then on, uh, on Holy Saturday, they uh, have the, the Easter fire, right? They, the fire is struck from a flint, and it, it's blessed outside the church doors, and from that fire, the Paschal candle is lit, and the sanctuary lamp uh, is lit to remind us that Christ is the light of the world from whom all lights and graces come. And then five grains of incense are embedded into the Paschal candle to remind us of the wounds of Christ. Uh, the baptismal font is blessed on Holy Saturday. And finally, you have the recitation of the 12 prophecies from the Old Testament that takes place before the High Mass. That is not a short ceremony <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. I used to have a, a friend in a religious order, a uh, traditional religious order, and he said, you know something's Catholic if it's either early in the morning or really long. That's, that's how you know for sure it's Catholic. Um, and then um, that takes place before the High Mass. And, of course, we have the Easter Vigil, and that's when uh, uh, people now are, are received into the church at the Easter Vigil. You know, the catechumens come for baptism and First Holy Communion. They have confirmation and uh, in, in the ordinary form. And all of those rites are very powerful, very beautiful, and very much worthy of your attendance. Uh, so, uh, a quick word on Calvary. Christ died on Good Friday, and um, you know that when you are crucified, you die from asphyxiation. You actually you actually drown uh, because if you if you're hanging from your hands, um, you can't breathe unless you pull yourself up. Uh, and in Christ's case, of course, he was nailed to the cross. So he would have to pull himself up. Uh, on the nails in order to take a breath, much less to be able to speak, to, to breathe and speak. You would have to hold himself there in order to do that. So Spike, uh, Christ spoke seven words from the cross. We have seven sayings 
and so they must have been pretty important considering what he had to go through in order to save them. So number one, what does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He tells the thief, Amen, I say to thee, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. He says to um, the Blessed Virgin, Woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. Uh, he, he quotes the Psalms, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He says, I thirst, and then he's given the, the, the sour wine to drink, which, as Scott Hahn would suggest, and I believe is correct, represents the final cup of the Passover, because then he says, consummatum est, it is consummated, it is finished, which are the, it's the final words of, of, the, of the Passover. And then uh, he quotes the Psalms again, Father, into thy hands I, commit, I commend my spirit. And, uh, and he gave up the ghost, as the, the scripture says, at Golgotha, or Calvary, uh, a hill outside of Jerusalem, St. Augustine says that on the cross, our Lord bent his head to kiss us, extended his arms to embrace us, and opened his heart to love us. How thankful we should be to Christ for his love, that he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, looking at the scriptures, what a, a number of things happened at the death of Jesus. The sun was darkened. There was an earthquake. The veil of the temple was rent in two, rocks split, graves opened, and the dead arose and appeared in Jerusalem. Now, the, the tearing of the veil, uh, the, the temple veil, the death of Christ, it marks the end of the Jewish religion. It's been fulfilled. You know, it, it is no longer the, the true religion. It had been a figure of the true church, but when the church was established, it had been fulfilled. It was no longer necessary. The types and figures had given way to the reality. The veil of the temple concealed the Holy of Holies. It was the most sacred part of the temple. But now that's been opened. The gates of heaven are, are opened. Now, we shouldn't make the mistake, though, as some of our separated brethren do, that, that, that Christianity put an end to all the moral laws and all the teaching of, of, the, of the Jewish religion. That's not true. Our, our good Lord himself said, I, I have come not to destroy, but to fulfill. He came to, to perfect the old law. And, and the authority of, of the temple and its officers was now placed in the church, which had been established by Christ, put into the hands of his apostles. But the, you know, the, the, the ceremony of the Jews was, was fulfilled and no longer, you know, was so that all those laws relating to worship were abolished in the Christian dispensation. All right, the church commemorates the death of Christ on Good Friday, and the whole church is mourning. That's why there's no Mass um, on Good Friday, and, and traditionally why there was no communion given to the faithful. The altar is stripped, the lights are put out, the bells are silenced, the crucifix is unveiled. You know, on Holy Thursday, they, they, take, the, they take the Blessed Sacrament to an altar of repose, so even the Blessed Sacrament, there's, you know, there's no consolation in the church. Uh, on that day, but uh, but they they unveil the crucifix so we can adore the cross. Now, after our, our Lord's death, his body was taken and and laid in a grave which belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. The disciples rolled the great stone to close the tomb. The chief priests and 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 the uh, Pharisees go to Pilate, saying, you know, that deceiver said that 
he was going to rise from the dead, so they asked him to put a guard uh, on the sepulcher so that people, you know, they, they can't steal the body and say he was risen from the dead, which we'll probably talk about next week. We'll talk about uh, what happened on Easter. Um, and Pilate said, you have a guard. You go guard it as well as you know how. Uh, so they, they went, and they made the sepulchre secure, and they sealed the stone, and they set the guard. Uh, <clears throat> but for our, but, you know, uh, for our sake today, for our purposes today, what do we learn from the sufferings and the death of Christ? First off, you know, it's, it's God's love for man and the evil of sin. That, that's the great lesson here. Um, you know, it, and that it wasn't necessary for Jesus to suffer the way he did. Like I said, um, his merits are infinite because he's a, he's a divine person. He could have wiped away the sins of a thousand worlds by shedding a single drop of his blood. In fact, there's an old, uh, there's an old a bit of uh, poetry. Uh, the pelican was a sign of Christ because uh, allegedly, or you know, legendarily, the pelican would uh, pierce its own breast and feed its young with its own blood. Right, so you see the obvious connection with the Eucharist. And there's an old poem. If let's see if I can remember. Dear pelican, for me, uh, thy bosom bled. For me, thy blood was shed. That blood whereof one precious drop could win abundant pardon for a thousand worlds of sin. All right, greater love no one has than to lay down his life for his friends. And uh, he did so in such a dramatic matter that when we come back, we're going to talk about the evidence on the Shroud of Turin and what the passion was really like, but he really underwent for you and for me. All that more when we come back. Lots of no-nonsense pathways right up there. Okay, there I am. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about the passion, the suffering and death of Christ, and that it was not necessary, fitting, yes, but not necessary for Jesus to suffer so intensely to redeem us all. But he chose to do it. He did it willingly. He chose to suffer agony because he loves us. And as the scripture says, greater love than this no one has that one lay down his life for his friends. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And from the Passion, we learn the evil of sin, and we learn how utterly incompatible sin is with God and the goodness of God. And so we see the necessity of satisfying for the malice and the wickedness that is sin. It must be a horrible thing. It must be the worst of all things to make Jesus Christ suffer so much. And he was our covenant representative. Uh, as the old saying goes, he, he paid a price he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. It took uh, the sacrifice of Christ to uh, atone for the disobedience of Adam because he was obedient even unto death. As Isaiah prophesied, he was wounded for our iniquities, he was bruised for our sins. And uh, <clears throat> sufferings of Christ give us a great example uh, to strengthen us under trials, and that we should accept them 
with resignation when they come in imitation of our Lord who suffered uh, so willingly for our sake. And I think it's safe to say that we are never going to suffer as much as he did. We are never going to suffer as much as he did in the garden when he took our sins upon himself. And at, at a final uh, note, traditionally, Catholic churches were built in the shape of a cross. They were built in a cruciform shape because within those churches is where the sacrifice of the cross is made present on our altars. And it made it easy to remember those events that took place on that first Good Friday when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for love of you, suffered and died on the cross. Now, I wanted to, in the remaining minutes we have left, talk a little bit about the Shroud of Turin. Now, I'm sure you know, you've heard what the, about the Shroud of Turin. It is a, uh, a linen cloth about 14 and a half feet long, three and a half feet wide, and it bears the image of a crucified man, both a, a frontal and a dorsal image of this man. So, um, you can think it out that the, the cloth is 14 feet long. He was laid at one end and then it was pulled over his head and down to his feet. And, uh, you know, that doesn't sound like the, the way you would, you know, do a shroud. Uh, and I think suspect the reason that it was done this way is because that the shroud of Turin, that linen was not designed to be a burial cloth, but a tablecloth. In fact, I believe that that linen was on the table of the last supper. Uh, you may notice also in even in Scripture, when it talks about the cloth, there's the, there's the large cloth, and then there is a smaller cloth that's referred to specifically as a napkin. Also, uh, the, the image that was on the shroud, the, 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 when Peter and John came to the tomb, the, the, the shroud had been folded up and, and you, know, uh, you know, placed down. And there is an intriguing thing in the scriptures. It says that when Peter, it says he saw the cloths and believed. And what does that mean? It's like, well, you know, he didn't say he saw that Jesus was gone and believed. It says he saw the cloth and believed. And I suspect that's because that cloth bore the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I, I first encountered the, the Shroud of Turin a number of years ago. I was skeptical. I mean, heard about it like everybody had also heard it was a uh, you know, a fake or a painting or something that had been debunked and all that. None of that is true, by the way. Um, <laughs> and um, somebody who was a, a listener and, and a, a fan of the, you know, I was working at St. Joseph Communications for Terry Barber back in those days with uh, me and Tim Staples and Jess Romero uh, going out and giving talks and whatnot. And um, some uh, fan had sent us uh, a full-size photographic copy of the Shroud of Turin, right? Two seven-foot-long, three-and-a-half-feet-wide uh, sheets of paper, big, big rolls of paper with, with a, a life-size image on it. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, and I, I guess Tim, I think, had actually seen the Shroud. And so we unrolled it, and I'm going, it's like, I don't see, I don't really see anything. You know, it's just this faint, weird image. And he said, back up. Just start backing up. And as I did... You know, uh, it, it coalesced into that image of the crucified Christ. And it, boy, it was powerful. And I took it home and my wife was like, ah, you know, she didn't, I'm going, oh, no, 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 let me, let me show it to you. Because she was skeptical too. You know, she, she'd heard the same as anybody else, you know. And, and this is, I get a, close to 20 years ago. 
And I did the same thing. I enrolled it and I said, just, just keep going back. And it had a really profound effect on her. In fact, she became an amateur syndenologist. I don't know anybody that knows more about the shot of Turin than my wife Betty does. I mean, she gave talks on it and, and uh, was offered a job as a docent at the, uh, at the Shroud Center back when it was still a going concern. In any event, um, I, you know, I believe that the Shroud of Turin is in fact the burial cloth of Jesus, that the image is in fact the image of our Lord. In my experience, those people that I know who have studied the Shroud also become convinced that it is, in fact, the burial cloth of Jesus, and that would include St. John Paul II. Uh, He venerated the Shroud back in 1998 and said, what counts above all, pardon me, is that the Shroud is a mirror of the gospel. In fact, he says, if we reflect on the sacred linen, we cannot escape the idea that the image it presents has a profound relationship with the, what the Gospels tell of Jesus' passion and death. And it's also, I mean, I, much of what we know about the passion really comes from the information that was gathered uh, from the Shroud, you know, going back many centuries. Uh, even the, the depiction of, of our Lord Jesus with the long hair and the beard and all that, that all comes from, from this image, uh, which is not, was not made by human hands. Now, on that image, especially on the dorsal image, the, the back image, it is very clear, you can clearly see the marks of the scourging. And the wounds are scattered all over his back from, from the, the back of his head to the, the down his legs to the, to the back of his feet. Um, and forensic analysis, right? Photography uh, really changed the study of the shroud back in the 19th century when the cameras invented Somebody took a picture of the shroud and they looked at a negative image and realized that the photographic negative is a positive image, which means that the image on the shroud is actually a negative image, like a photographic image. Some scientists think that the image was made through a process called flash photolysis. That's, that's the, the, the same process that leaves uh, silhouettes on walls when an atomic bomb explodes. Okay, so that, a, a light of that intensity, which might be consistent with the resurrection. I mean, you know, I'm... I'm guessing, but there you go. Anyway, they can see that image so much better now that they've uh, subjected it to forensic analysis, which has also come a long way uh, in, in recent years. And they can tell by looking at the wounds that he was scourged by two soldiers, one standing on either side of him, and that one of the soldiers was taller than the other one, for example. Um, and you can see that they used one type of whip or rod and then they used uh, a second type of whip uh, called a flagellum, which is like a cat of nine tails, right? It has several strips of leather. And on the ends, there are little, like, little leaden uh, weights, so like little dumbbells or little bits of bone that uh, are for, you know, they're meant to tear the flesh more effectively. And, um, and you can see with the naked eye about 120 wounds from the scourging. But again, through processing and, uh, you know, high-resolution photography and image enhancement, they, they now can see hundreds of wounds. Uh, you know, back in the year 2000, they did that high-resolution uh, image enhancement. And it's amazing how much information is on that piece of cloth. It's incredible. In fact, a uh, uh, number of years ago, a guy at the J, uh, JPL here, the, the Jet Propulsion Laboratories of NASA, um, they were using, it was during the Apollo or after the Apollo mission, and they were looking at the photographs they'd taken to the moon and running it through this uh, piece of equipment that took from the image, the information from the image, and created 
um, 3D images of the lunar surface. And this one guy, he's a Christian, and he took a picture of the facial image of the Shroud of Turin, ran it through that machine, and out came a, a 3D image of the face on the Shroud. And he's going, that information should not be, if, this, if that were a painting, the information wouldn't be there. And, and to demonstrate, he ran a picture of the, the face of the Mona Lisa, right, which is this amazing, much, much clearer image, but there's no 3D information on it. Just, just amazing. I mean, you can talk forever about this, but I wanted to, to mention, again, the wounds. So from the scourging, and there's also wounds on, on the front because the whips, you know, uh, went around his body. And, uh, and again, you can, if you've seen Mel Gibson's Passion, they uh, very effectively showed what, what that scourging would have actually been like. Uh, but of course, and there's no, there's no side images. We just have the frontal and dorsal image on the shroud because it wasn't in contact with his body on the side. So uh, there's probably even more uh, than we can see. Also, the marks of the crown of thorns, clearly visible in front and the back of his head. The wounds from carrying the cross, the wound on his shoulder, uh, consistent with shouldering the cross, uh, the, the, the wound that our Lord revealed to St. Bernard of Clairvaux was the most painful. And you can see how it bruised and abrased the shoulders and, and further opened up and widened the, uh, the, the wounds that were already there from the scourging. And then there's a second wound on his back further down from you know, uh, the, the falls that he took and the cross cutting through the, the cloth and creating a, a further wound. And then, of course, um, we have the, the wounds on his knees from, from where he fell when he was carrying the cross, and, uh, and naturally the wounds from the nails. Uh, and judging by the, throut, by the shroud, we confirm the, the tradition that three nails were used, one for each hand and two, or and one going through both of his feet. All right? And, uh, and you can see that he he's, uh, was crucified uh, through the wrist in the, in the part of the wrist called distot's space. It's a space among the bones that, that holds him up. And then, of course, the, the wound in his uh, side where he was heart was pierced with a lance, all uh, on the shroud. And that's why St. John Paul said, for every thoughtful person, it is a reason for deep reflection, which can even involve one's life. The shroud is thus a truly unique sign that points to Jesus the true word of the Father, and invites us to pattern our lives on the life of the one who gave himself for us. And that's no nonsense. So this Holy Week, let us go to the cross of Jesus, at least in spirit, and thank him for what he has done for us. Uh, and um, just say with St. Paul that I count everything as loss because of the supreme good of knowing Jesus Christ. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all other things. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you uh, next time around. Until then, have a very happy freedom at Blessed Easter. And may God richly bless you and your family.